please turn in your Bible over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, we're going to take a look at a special passage in 1 Peter that reminds us of the importance of God's Word in our lives. And, and as you're turning there, I want to remind you about our theology here at Grace Fellowship Church. Uh, one of the things, one of the truths that we believe and hold dear is this truth, that God has placed you in the particular situation and location you're in for a reason. He's put you in the middle of the unique circle of family and relationships you have uh, for a purpose, and that purpose is to shine the light of Jesus in the circle of relationships that you have. Uh, I believe that this is the main truth that the Apostle Peter is actually getting at in 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3. We're only, we're only going to look at the first three verses of chapter 2 today, but in, in the next two chapters in this letter, I think that that's the idea he's getting at. Uh, and the idea that God has you where, he's ha where He has you for a reason, that reason is to shine the light of Jesus, and the obstacles and difficulties you face are not an obstacle in the way of the gospel. That's actually part of how you reach the people that you're ministering to. You think of the Apostle Paul, and when he writes to the churches about being imprisoned in Rome, that was part of how he was able to reach the Praetorian Guard with the gospel in a way that he never would have had access to if the calamity and the trial of being imprisoned hadn't befallen him. The unique difficulties and locations and relationships that are in your life uh, are not obstacles to the gospel. Uh, God has you there for a reason to shine the light of the gospel. You have a, maybe we could say it this way, you have a unique circle of relationships that many of the rest of us uh, don't have access to or are people that we can't reach because there is no relationship there. And so, God wants to use you in the middle of the unique life that He has called you to, to reach people for Christ. But you can't reach people for Christ effectively if you don't have the gospel. And even if you are in Christ, you can't uh, shine the light of Jesus effectively if you're not connected to God. And that's what these passages uh, or these verses we're going to look at are about. We're going to look at the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2 today. Uh, let's read the text together. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. A special delight for and love of God's Word is a mark of a true believer. Jesus said it this way, if you continue in my words, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. According to the psalmist, the happy man is the man who meditates on God's law day and night. And that's the direction our text is moving in, longing for, having a craving for God's Word so that we can grow up by it. Now, for simplicity's sake, when Peter wrote this, he only gives one command in these three verses that help you understand uh, the, the main idea. In English, it could look like there are two commands. It could look like in verse 1, he's telling you to put off sin, uh, but that's not actually what's going on. There's only one command, and that's one of the things, this is important to stop and say, one, this is one of the things that's really helpful. We need to acknowledge that the Word of God uh, didn't you know, descend from heaven as an English Bible to us, okay? It, it was, uh, the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek, 
And in Greek, there is a separate verb tense of command, which is really helpful in writing because it helps everybody understand this is a command the author is giving, and this, uh, this other thing over here, it might be an encouragement, it might be a suggestion, uh, but it helps you understand with clarity what is a command and what's not. And the one command in these three verses is found in verse 2. We're told to, uh, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word. Now, immediately, we need to make a clarification because milk is being used as an illustration here. In other places in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 3 or in Hebrews 5, the Apostle Paul and the author of the Hebrews, they use milk as an illustration in a negative way. They use the idea of drinking milk to shame their readers for being so fleshly and so immature that they can't move on to accepting teaching about practical uh, righteousness. As you're living for Christ in the process of sanctification, they can't move on to the teaching about practical righteous living because they're still so immature they need milk. But that's not what's going on here. Peter is not accusing his audience of being uh, fleshly or immature, and he is not using milk with a negative connotation. He's using milk positively here. No matter how mature you are as a Christian, you always are going to need the pure milk of God's Word to nourish your soul, whether you're uh, the child in the faith or the young man in the faith or the father in the faith that John speaks of in 1 John, you will never outgrow your need for the pure milk of God's Word. And the reason you should crave God's Word is not for the Word itself, per se. It's because of the one you meet through the Word. Uh, this is really not so much about desiring God's Word as it is about desiring God. This is craving the one whom the Word reveals to us. This is actually about having a craving for God, and the way you encounter God is through His Word. Maybe we could say it this way. The Word of the Lord is continually presenting the Lord of the Word, and that's why we love it so. We love God's Word not as a piece of ancient literature, but because of how we encounter God through His Word. Pastor Edmund Clowney makes this helpful observation. Coming to the Word is coming to the Lord. This central truth cuts both ways. We cannot detach the Word from the Lord like the scribes and Pharisees and profess to cling to Scripture while refusing the Lord. On the other hand, neither can we profess obedience to the Lord by rejecting the Word. To separate the living Lord from a dead book, quote-unquote, or uh, a divine Lord from a merely human book is to reject the apostolic gospel. Now, I can't help it. I'm going to explain that quote because it just… Uh, uh, when he talks about a dead book and a merely human book, we do not believe that about Scripture. This is not a dead book. This is a book that is living and active because of the way the Holy Spirit uses it in the hearts of people. And it is not a book that was merely a human, that is hu uh, merely a human book. It's a book uh, that the Holy Spirit inspired prophets and apostles to pen, and we believe every word is there by divine intentionality. What Edmund Clowney was uh, taking a shot at there was theological liberalism or progressive Christianity that claims it's just a dead book or a merely human book with mistakes in it. But that's not what we believe. We value this book because in it we encounter our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
Notice the verb that carries this precise command. In the New American Standard, the command is to long for the pure milk of the Word. So, this is about longing, this is about craving, this is about desiring the way we meet with God through His Word. And that idea of desiring in the New Testament is very important. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, we're told not just to do certain things, but to desire and long for and crave and love certain people or things. And so, what we're talking about this morning isn't just an issue of behavior. Peter could have told us that we need to regularly study the Word of God for ourselves or read it, or uh, he could have uh, told us to memorize it, hide it in in our hearts uh, for those moments of temptation when we need it. And in fact, other authors of Scripture do tell us to do those things, but in this passage, that's not what Peter is focusing on. He's focusing more on the desire that gets us there to study God's Word. And so, Peter's not working on the behavioral level right now. He's working down on the heart level, and that's important because what your heart craves will control your words and actions. But the problem it creates for us is this objection that I think most of us feel, and that is this, often we feel like we don't have control over our desires. This whole idea, long for the pure milk of the Word, it implies that I have some control over what I desire. And it begs the question, can you choose to want something, right? Uh, Do you even have power over your desires, or are you just at the whim of whatever your desires are? Well, the Bible teaches that we do have some power over our desires, but you have to take the long view. You have to play the long game. Over time, you can cultivate godly desires. It's like a garden. You don't just plant a seed uh, in uh, one day, and then the very next morning, it's sprouted into a plant that yields vegetables for you that you can eat. You know it doesn't work that way. But in our uh, fast-paced, microwave, efficient, uh, on-demand culture, Often what happens spiritually is when we try biblical principles and they don't produce an immediate harvest, it's easy for us to think, well, maybe these principles don't work. But when it comes to godly desires, you have to play the long game. And that's why I'm intentionally using the word cultivate here, because for an English-speaking audience, cultivate conjures up the idea of a garden where you plant something in the spring and you have to wait months and months and months till it produces a vegetable for you. Or even, dare I say, an orchard or a vine where you plant the thing and it may not produce fruit for you for years. It could be three years before you get fruit out of that tree or out of that vine. Uh, I think the same thing is going on here. You can cultivate godly desires and healthy spiritual cravings, but it takes time. And now, cultivating the right desires, the fact that you do have control over that if you take the long view, that's not just my opinion. Jesus Himself teaches this, and He teaches it in multiple places in the gospel, but perhaps uh, the place that it comes out uh, clearest is in His teaching on money. If you remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches about money, and He says two things about money in the same context that I think if you're just reading through it, we're apt to mistake as similar when what they actually teach is opposite, two opposite uh, views that are both true at the same time about money. Uh, He begins by saying, in essence, 
that what you do with your money reveals where your heart is. Because what you spend your money on, especially discretion, any kind of discretionary spending you might have, it shows what you value, right? What you value, what you love. But then later on, he says, quote, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in the first teaching, Jesus says that where your heart goes, your money will follow. And then by looking at where you spent your money, we can backtrack to figure out what's truly important to you, what you really value. Uh, That's the first. But in the second, he claims that where your money goes, your heart will follow. And I think we can all experience this. Imagine for a moment, I don't have any money in the stock market right now, except retirement. I think we all have money in the stock market. That's scary. Um, because uh, a lot of those funds are in But ima- imagine that you have some money, and you buy, you buy stock in a company. Uh, you, you do research, and this is a company that um, uh, it's lo- the headquarters are located in another part of the United States. You know no one who works for this company. You have no family. You have no friends who work for this company. And so you invest some money in it. Well, before you invested money, that company's stock could rise or fall, how it did, you know, profitable, unprofitable, uh, hiring new employees, laying off employees, and it doesn't affect you, doesn't make your blood pressure go up or down. But once you have money in it, you're going to be paying close attention to how it does, right? What's going on there is my affections follow what I've invested in. And so one of the spiritual truths we need to grapple with is if, if you know, man, I really should, I ought to have a passion for this, I ought to have more of a heart for this, one way to grow in that is to make an investment, whether that investment is money, but it, it may not be money, it could be time, right? Uh, do what you know is right, invest in what you know is valuable, and I believe that over time, your heart and your emotions will follow. Uh, and so, then the same is true with God's Word. Make the investment to uh, read and study God's Word for yourself, and I think over time, your emotions and even the craving you have for it will follow. You do actually have some influence over what you crave. So in the long run, cultivate the desire for the right thing by investing in it. Now, as we look at this command to long for the pure milk of the Word, there are some important clarifications. There's two clarifications Peter gives that help us, uh, and then he also gives us two motivations that help us understand why we're supposed to long for the pure milk of the Word. And I've put those in your outline in the bulletin. Uh, We are to long for the pure milk of the Word as we set aside sin with the dependence of a newborn so that we can grow up spiritually because we've already tasted the kindness of the Lord. So, let's walk through each of these clarifications and motivations in order uh, as they appear in the passage. Peter begins verse 1, therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, and he lists a couple other sins. And uh, it's been a while since we've been in a New Testament book, having gone through Isaiah, so I'm going to say it again for the, for the old guard. Whenever you see the word, therefore, you're… Yes, yes. Oh, I should have. I'm sorry. I didn't have it in my notes to stay quiet so you guys could answer my question. You guys are wonderful, uh, wonderful students. Yeah, whenever you see the word therefore in the New Testament, you're supposed to stop and ask, what's this therefore? Therefore. Therefore is a connecting word 
that is always pointing you back, saying, look, before you can understand this paragraph we're talking about, you got to understand what the author said earlier. So, in the earlier paragraph, before we got here, what Peter was talking about was a command to love other Christians because we've been born again through the imperishable seed of the enduring Word of God. So, in that paragraph, the Word of God, which contains the gospel, is like a seed that came to the soil of our hearts and uh, sprung up and produced eternal life. But now, in these verses, he switches the illustration. Instead of it being a seed, the Word of God in our paragraph becomes milk that nourishes you as you grow in the Christian life. So, God's Word caused you to be born again, previous paragraph, but now God's Word causes you to grow in your faith. And he says uh, that you need to put aside all malice and deceit and a number of other sins. And I said before that 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 whole phrase, putting aside, it may look like a command, uh, but it doesn't actually come as a command in the Greek New Testament. It is a participle that is connected to the main command and helps you understand how to accomplish the main command. It an- and it answers the question of when. A good way to translate it might be, as you work to set aside malice and deceit like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word. Um, and this word that we translate as putting aside, it's used in other places in the New Testament to talk about uh, taking off old garments of sin to put on garments of righteousness. It's talked uh, about as uh, cleansing ourselves from things that defile us. And so, it points us to this reality. If you want to crave God, you have to make room in your heart for Him. If you want to crave God's Word, you have to make space in your soul for that. You see, your soul is very much like your stomach. It has a limited capacity. Or it's also, it's like the house you live in. There's limited room in your house. Uh, when Brooke and I lived in California, so for the first 11 years of our marriage, we lived in an 800-square-foot apartment uh, in California. And by the end of that time, we had three children with all of their clothing and toys and accoutrements and pack and plays. And uh, I remember one day, I think, it, I think it might have even been a gift, a gift arrived from one of our parents, a very kind gift, but we, we got this gift, and I remember telling Brooke in frustration, we have now reached the point where if anything new comes into this apartment that's supposed to stay, something already in the apartment has to go, because we have no more storage space. Like, we're packed out to the gills. We can't fit anything more in this space. Well, the same thing is going on with your soul. There's limited space, or maybe we could say it this way. What Peter is saying here Uh, The dynamic that he's putting on display for us is kind of like that old reality show, Hoarders, if any of you watch that, right? Uh, If you want to long for God, you have to stop hoarding things that crowd out affection for Him. You see, some of you in the physical realm, you're pack rats. You'll never get rid of anything. And the reason why, you pull it out and you look at it and you're like, I haven't even used this for years or perhaps decades. I haven't even used this for decades, and, but you keep it. You, you think, maybe I should throw it away so we have more space, but you decide, no, nah, I'm going to keep it because someday in the future, I might need it again, right? Well, the problem that the physical hoarder has is analogous to the problem each one of us has spiritually. 
you probably, we, I'll, I'll include myself, we probably wouldn't admit it, but we do, especially in church on a Sunday morning, but we have a harder time letting go of malice and hypocrisy and envy uh, than we want to admit because we think someday I might need it again. Someday somebody might hurt me deep, and I might need malice as a coping mechanism, right? I mean, it, it might seem strange to you, but I actually like being angry. I like the slow burn of bitterness. It's empowering to rise to the throne of the universe and judge what that other person did. And you know, the, the, the really great thing about it is while I seethe with righteous indignation against those horrible people and what they did to me, I don't have to think about the mess I am or what I need to confess to the Lord or worry about getting my own life straight. And you know what else? I'm not a perfect person. And someday I might get myself into a jam and I might need deceit to save my skin. Someday I might need something from someone and I might need to use deceit to manipulate them into giving me what I want that I feel like I just can't openly ask for because it wouldn't look right. And someday, uh, not only that, I I'm a bit of a glory hound, and you know, we all, I mean, reputation's important. I would like people to think of me as a spiritual person, and hypocrisy helps fill in the gaps of where I fall short. And not only that, uh, I might need slander someday to create the reality in someone else's mind that my enemy is also their enemy so that I can gain an ally. See, we're all smart enough to put away malice and deceit. You know, we, we take malice and deceit, and we wouldn't leave those out on the coffee table of our hearts when Jesus arrives, but we store them in the closet because we think that someday I might need that again. But you've been born again. Get rid of it. Get rid of malice and deceit and hypocrisy. They're not… Do they accomplish things in the short run? Yes. But there's consequences that come back to haunt you in the long run. Get rid of them. Cleanse your heart of them because what they do is they choke out your desire to meet with God through His Word. Get rid of them because what they do is they choke out the appetite you should have for God's Word because you've already filled your soul with other things. Uh, that's, the, that's the first idea, the first clarification he's getting at. Now, you might respond to that and say, well, Chris, that I agree with you. I want to get rid of it, but one of the things on those lists is like a really, really bad habit, and I've tried, and it doesn't, it doesn't go away. And so, what do I do? And well, the big picture response would be, confess it for what it is, and repent, turn from it. And then, for each one of these sins, we have very specific helps. You know, think about malice. You can pray for the other people. It's hard to stay angry and bitter at people when you pray for them, because when you come before the throne of grace in prayer, you know after all the grace you've received, it's going to be really inappropriate for me to pray for judgment. So I, I can't pray for Bob to live under a bridge, because I know that wouldn't be right. And so I pray for God to work in Bob's heart, and hopefully in not, a not very snotty way for Bob to learn not to sin against other people the way he sinned against me, right? But pray, you pray for them. You can pray for the people that you struggle with, bitterness, anger, and malice, right? And hypocrisy. The whole point, it's, it's, we're all imperfect, 
And the issue with hypocrisy is not that you don't live up to your principles or you don't live as consistent a Christian life as you should be. The problem with hypocrisy is acting like you're good at things you're not good at. So one way to get rid of hypocrisy is just to confess where you're weak, right? Just be honest. Just confess it. Don't try to act like you're strong at something spiritually that you're not strong at, right? Envy. One way to kind of cut, at the, cut down uh, envy uh, at the root is thankfulness, right? We, we have some very specific helps in Scripture that can help you with each one of them, but all of it starts with confession and repentance, and we need to deal with them. We need to face up and deal and get rid of them because they choke off the desire for God's Word uh, that's, that's healthy. We need to have a healthy appetite for God's Word. And then secondly, uh, we're given uh, this clarification by Peter he, we're supposed to uh, crave, long for God's Word, like newborn babies, verse 2. Now, think about that illustration for a moment. Newborn babies are desperate for their mother's milk, and when they want their mother's milk, they're not subtle about it, right? Uh, whether you're trying to sleep, or you're out in public, or you're at a wedding, if the baby wants to be fed, they will make their desires known. And any delay in feeding will result in a very loud reaction from a very tiny person, uh, right? And, and so, there's a certain desperation there. They have a powerful reaction. And not only that, but think about even their cycles. You know, when the infant is young, it's like every three hours. It's not like they binge feed and then they don't need to be fed for 12 hours. It's a recurring thing. And I think that's part of this idea of longing, that we desire earnestly dare I say, desperately, like a newborn baby is desperate for its mother's milk. Now, that desperation, that's, in fact, desperation is a good word. That's the main thing I see in, in this illustration, that newborn babies are desperate for their mommy's milk. Well, what that does is that alerts us to one of the problems with our lack of desire for God's Word and it's this. Not only have we allowed other things like envy to hijack our affections, the dependence of a newborn baby who needs its mother's milk alerts us to the oft-missing element of desperation. One of the reasons we're not excited to get into God's Word is because we think we have it covered. We think we're doing better than we actually are we think that we have more wisdom than we actually have, and so there's no motivation to get into it. But those who have a broken spirit and contrite heart over their sin, they know they need God's Word to help them. The comparison, I think, with a newborn baby is an apt one. Uh, when it comes to some spiritual issues, we are as helpless as a baby, right? We can't uh, overcome our sinful habits on our own. We need God's help with that. We don't have enough independent wisdom in ourselves to make wise decisions for life. We need God's guidance and the light of His counsel. Uh, without God, all we would have are false hopes to turn to that only let us down in the long run. And so, maybe we could say it this way, you won't be motivated to come to God and listen to His counsel if you think that you're a good person who already has life mostly under control and that all you need is some divine, uh, ancillary divine assistance when there's an emergency. You're not going to be as motivated to get into God's Word. Could it be that one of the reasons we don't long for God's Word is not just because we have wrong affections, but because we're too self-sufficient? 
right? And I, I say this to my shame, this is one of the things I didn't experience as much till I got into ministry. And now that I'm in ministry, there are times where I'm just like, I don't even know what to do. What are we going to do? I have no idea. I open the Word, and I'm like, I'm, I mean, I'm in the minor prophets, and I really don't think there's going to be any help there, but uh, that's where I am. And, and sure enough, you know, there's, there's some principle that helps me or comforts me or guides me, right? But I think one of the problems that, if, if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, I should long for God's Word, but I just don't. Uh, one of the issues could be that you, you think that you're doing better than you actually are. Uh, we, we aren't always aware of how spiritually wretched and miserable and poor and blind we are. And so, I think two of the challenges that face us uh, is, number one, if we have these other things, malice and envy and deceit and hypocrisy in our heart, they choke off our appetite for God's Word. And if we're not desperate like a newborn baby, if we're arrogant about our current condition, uh, it's not going to encourage us to be going to God's Word looking for the guidance we need. Now, notice, third, uh, Peter gives us a reason why he's given the command, and he gives us a reason we should crave God's Word that is meant to motivate us. Why should I do this, Peter? Answer, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, as an evangelical Christian, my first response to Peter is, what do you mean grow in respect to salvation? You're either saved or you're not. I repented. I placed my faith in Christ in the past. What do you mean grow with respect to salvation? Well, the answer is the New Testament portrays our salvation as an experience, a thing that we experience in the past, present, and future. So, in the past, there was a day when you repented of going your own way and placed your faith in Christ. In the present, uh, salvation is experienced through sanctification. You, you are learning to sin less and less and to obey God more consistently. And then there's also a future aspect of salvation. In fact, the future aspect of salvation so far in this letter in 1 Peter, that seems to be what Peter's distracted by in the first chapter. Most of the references to salvation back in chapter 1 are all about the future aspect of our salvation. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, he talks about a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He talks about how the outcome of our faith will be the salvation future tense of our souls when Christ returns. Um, and so, maybe we could say it this way. As people who live after the Industrial Revolution, we shouldn't be thinking about our salvation as mechanical, right? We, since the Industrial Revolution, we like mechanical illustrations. That's how we think as a people, okay? But think of it instead, think of our salvation as organic. Um, the, the seed of the Word of God was planted in our hearts, and then the milk of the Word of God waters that salvation so that we grow by it. And there is a future day coming when we will be fully like Christ. And so, drinking the pure milk of the Word is important in the present so that our souls can grow. It, just like a, you think about child development, a child or a teenager, they need to have a healthy uh, appetite to eat good food so that their bodies can develop the way they need to. In fact, one of the interesting uh, details about this word grow, grow with respect to salvation, is that it's passive. Uh, Pastor Edmund Clowney explains it this way, Peter again shows us that the Lord who gave us new birth 
by the Word also gives us growth by the Word. The word grow is passive, and here's what that means. We grow only as we are grown by the milk of the Word. Maybe we could translate it this way. Long for the pure milk of the Word so that it may grow you in respect to salvation. That might be a more faithful way of communicating it. And so, the why of this command is so that we can grow up spiritually into the kind of people God has saved us to be. And then Peter gives one final reason for the command, verse 3. It may not look like a reason, but it is. He says, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is a first-class conditional statement in Greek, which means uh, Peter isn't doubting the genuineness of uh, the congregation's profession of faith. He's giving them an argument. It's stated as an if proposition, but he's giving them an argument that he knows to be true that is very similar to what the psalmist talks about in Psalm 34. You've already tasted the kindness of God, right? You have, even if you haven't been in God's Word, even if you're a younger Christian here this morning, you've already uh, experience that God has been good-natured to you. He's been gentle. He's been patient. He's been kind to you. He hasn't treated you according to what your sins deserve, but according to His mercy. So, you've already tasted this milk. Even if you haven't read the Bible yet, you've already tasted it in God's kindness and the kindness He showed you when you were born again. And then now, having tasted it, having a growing appetite for it is important for your spiritual development. Uh, you think about that. Like, imagine if you're a parent, and you have a son, and he hits the teenage years, and he just, his appetite stays the same. He doesn't start eating you out of house and home. You'd actually be, I'd, I'd be a little concerned about that. I still remember when I hit that phase, uh, I, and, and uh, I remember being a teenager, and in high school, I played three sports. I was always moving, uh, but I had like 5% body fat. Those were the days. And um, I remember one time I went out with some high school friends, some high school buddies, and I ate two entire Grand Slam breakfasts at Denny's. On another occasion, I remember eating three Whoppers at Burger King. Didn't even phase me. Didn't feel sick at all. Now, I eat one Whopper, and I'm like, oh, I got to lay down. Oh, this is, I, it, but but that's, that was my appetite, because I was a teenage boy. I didn't end up being as tall as I thought I would be, but I, that, I had an appetite, and that's healthy. That's healthy for your development, right? Um, and so, tasting uh, God's Word and enjoying it isn't just about the variety of the language that's in the Bible. It's that we taste the goodness of ki- and kindness of our Lord, but part of being healthy spiritually is having a growing appetite for the milk of God's Word. Years ago, the National Dairy Board had an advertising slogan, milk, it does a body good, and maybe we could use that for our purposes. God's Word, it does a soul good, right? God's Word is nourishing. God is good, and His Word is good for us. It's pure milk. It's not laced with trickery or manipulations or false hopes, and when we faithfully study it and obey it, it nourishes and grows us and having a growing appetite for it is a good thing. Uh, I, I, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I'm going to say it. I was at a men's conference yesterday, so exhorting men is on my mind. And uh, men, I, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm not going to call anybody out. But some of you 
your souls look like you were weaned on a pickle. And I'm trying to help you here. So what you need is the milk of God's Word. It will nourish your soul. It'll put muscle on your bones. It'll help you with respect to your sanctification. And so Peter's counsel to us is, long for the pure milk of the Word. As you lay aside the sins uh, which choke out that desire, and desire it with the desperation of a newborn baby, so that it may grow you spiritually and go for it because you've already tasted the kindness of the Lord, and you know you'll find more of His kindness in His Word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have not been silent but have spoken to us. We thank You that You have sent to us the eternal Word, Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to teach us and uh, to leave us His words to guide us and for the Holy Spirit to pin Scripture and draw us to You and illuminate our understanding as we read Your Word. We thank You so much for Your kindness to us, and we pray that You would help us to understand Your Word and to be doers of it. In Jesus' name, amen.